The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And for today's broadcast, we have a great honor and I would say a treat in speaking to Dr. Uh, Robert Boffman, who I and I think most people throughout the United States and probably the world recognize as one of the leading experts uh, in sarcoidosis. Dr. Boffman uh, is professor of medicine at the University of Cincinnati and runs the interstitial disease and sarcoidosis clinic there and has written uh, extensively and studied the problem of sarcoidosis. And I can tell you, when I have a difficult case, he's the one that I call first. And uh, he and his colleagues published a paper called Sarcoidosis in America, an analysis based on healthcare use uh, in the August issue of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And I was really pleased to read it and figured I'd get an opportunity to talk uh, to Dr. Uh, Baufman. So uh, welcome, Bob. Uh, I-, I wanted to, uh, you know, sarcoidosis is still where where we live, where I live in the New York area. It is very, very common. I, you know, I'm seeing multiple new cases weekly. But um, I don't have to tell uh, Dr. Boffman or the audience that sarcoidosis has a very wide spectrum from people who are totally asymptomatic and are kind of shocked that you're uh, raising this diagnosis to people who whose lives are threatened in a variety of ways by the illness. So I, I want to ask Bob what uh, his concept of sarcoidosis is it seems to me we haven't changed our concepts very much from when I was a medical student, but I, I really want Bob's perspective. Well, I mean, you're right. There's a there's a fundamental thing about sarcoidosis is the formation of a granuloma. That's an inflammatory response. And over the years, uh, that cause of that granuloma uh, has still not yet been identified. There are two leading candidates. The uh, one is an atypical form of a mycobacteria. Another is probably uh, a form of Propineobacter acne, which is a common skin uh, superinfection. But yeah, I think that the reason why we're having so much trouble is that it's very likely that sarcoidosis could be caused by more than one inciting antigen. Uh, the World Trade Center is a great example of the first responders having a bump in the incidence of having sarcoidosis. So it's the illogic, immunologic response that's the overrun of the T lymphocyte macrophages that causes the granuloma is the characteristic feature of sarcoidosis. And it's not just limited to the lung, like you would see with, say, a hypersensitivity pneumonitis, but it's throughout that body. It is multiple organ involvement. So most patients will only have one or two organs that are bothering them, but if you look hard enough, you often will find more organs than you see. And um, I know, you know, even, you know, reading your paper, that it appears to occur in some ethnic and perhaps genetic groups more than others. Uh, do we have a clear understanding of why and uh, is the sarcoidosis problem different in different 
uh, groups? Well, I think that the ethnicity thing has been a longstanding issue in the United States because it, uh, for most physicians during their training, they have the impression that it's a disease often that it's of, of African Americans much more than Caucasians. But as clinics widen up and you get into your practice, for example, you'll often start to realize that it's something that's a little bit more broad sped. And I think that's partly because uh, ethnicity also has a major implication about the manifestations. For example, most of us are on this podcast will be pulmonologists for training for pulmonary, and we see patients with advanced pulmonary disease more common in African Americans and Caucasians. On the other hand, neurologic disease is pretty much the same regardless of the underlying ethnicity. Uh, cardiac disease, much more common in Japanese and others. So ethnicity does have a major impact on its outcome. The bottom line of our paper was that uh, African Americans do have the disease about three to four times more commonly than Caucasians. Uh, so there, there is that mix. We also found it, interestingly, less frequently, but still, in Hispanics and Asians in the United States. There had been a feeling that maybe it wasn't that there were only the two major groups, but in fact, if you large large enough group, you see it in all ethnic groups in the U.S. Uh, we have uh, made the diagnosis a few times in very elderly patients. Uh, could you comment on that? Yeah, there's a very interesting migration of the average age of the diagnosis. In this paper, for example, the uh, most of the patients who are being treated for sarcoidosis are above 55. And in fact, at the time of diagnosis, 55 or older was a cutoff, that the median age was about 56 at the time of diagnosis. This is clearly different than 30 to 40 years ago. And it's not just that because we're looking for it in an older population. There's a very good study from Japan looking in the same area of the, of the country, getting epidemiologic data uh, for each decade uh, over the course of the last 40 years, and the average age at the time of diagnosis has risen. So most papers nowadays comment on the fact that the average age is greater than 50. So a 75-year-old person sitting in your office who has hyalur adenopathy, you really should keep sarcoidosis in mind. Well, uh, after my own experience, uh, I do. And and now uh, I, I wanted to get your, uh, your opinion uh, as much as uh, you can support it with evidence about the need for pathologic diagnosis. Uh, my own practice is, you know, I individualize the need for a pathologic diagnosis. Sometimes the clinical uh, and laboratory uh, picture lead myself and uh, my multidisciplinary colleagues to believe that this is sarcoidosis, and we treat on, on that basis. Uh, sometimes that engenders criticism. So, so do we need to establish a uh, diagnosis in all patients suspected of sarcoidosis? Well, it's important to keep in mind is that one can never be 100% sure of the diagnosis. So pathology doesn't actually confirm the diagnosis, although we all use that term, because granulomas are not specific for sarcoidosis. There are lots of conditions, including tuberculosis and lymphoma that can cause granulomatous reaction. So it's equally important to have the clinical presentation, including asymptomatic, as it is to have the pathology. I think that the other major feature that we tend to underemphasize is time. Is the longer one follows a patient, the more comfortable you come with the diagnosis. So a patient that comes to you four to five years into with bilateral hyaluronopathy, having a clinical course of 
waxing and waning, for example, on the basis of treatment, you become much more comfortable with it, even if you don't have a biopsy. I think your your dilemma is the same I have. It really, in some ways, if a patient's going to have to have a biopsy done, I want to be sure that it's actually going to change my impact of therapy, or it's going to be a relatively simple. A person with a skin lesion, that's not very difficult to go off and send a biopsy. A patient with only a neurologic lesion, whether to do a brain biopsy, um, that becomes a little bit more difficult. And I know the uh, approach to diagnosis, when we do decide to make or, or attempt to get tissue, the quandary, I mean, it's always raises, is this a lymphoma or is it uh, sarcoidosis? Uh, uh, and, and there's certainly a broader, as you mentioned, a broader differential uh, diagnosis. But, uh, w- but what do you think uh, are the best routes to make the diagnosis uh, in today's world? I think in today's world, we're still looking at the lung as the most common place that one goes after the diagnosis. And I think bronchoscopy um, has truly evolved. The use of EBUS has I think the majority of patients with undergoing bronchoscopy will get an EBUS if you have adenopathy. And using scatting, classical stage one with hyaladenopathy alone, or stage two with adenopathy plus infiltrates. Now, CT scan is, of course, much more sensitive for picking up adenopathy, so you may direct your EBUS attempts with using that. We at our institution are doing a study now that we're looking at the complementary role of EBUS in cryobiopsy, because I think the cryobiopsies enhance the yield of transbronchial biopsy. So I think that in the new wave, we'll probably be doing both of these, especially in patients with infiltrates, whether they do or do not have adenopathy. Sadi Ben-Quinn is our interventional bronchoscopist, and he presented at um, last year's ATS some information regarding the value of the two tests it's complementary. Do you think that transbronchial biopsy without EBIS is still a useful approach? I think in a patient who does not have adenopathy, the yield is uh, much better for transbronchial biopsy than EBUS. There's quite a relatively strong literature supporting that. The reason to think about doing an EBUS even in that situation is that you may not see something on x-ray, but you may see an accessible uh, node on EBUS, uh, even a normal size. But that also depends on the skill. You have to remember that EBUS adds a lot of time to the procedure, and so in anesthesia, not an enormous amount, but it, if there's a relatively low yield, less than 40%, you may want to not do the EBUS and just proceed with transbronchial and bronchial biopsies. Bronchial biopsies have about a 20 to 30% yield, and they're so low risk that you should always add that to your biopsy uh, armamentarium. And now, uh, I just wanted, I know you've touched on some of the uh, key points in your paper, but I wanted to know if you wanted to add any or uh, leave the... Uh, uh, the listeners with the take-home points of your uh, recently published paper? I would. Uh, there's two parts of the paper I'd like to kind of emphasize. The first is the overall epidemiology. We had the opportunity with uh, to working with uh, one of the major healthcare carriers to look at their database, which represents about 15% of the United States. So they were uh, able to give us a lot of information regarding the patients that they saw in their database who were diagnosed by the physician as having sarcoidosis. And what they showed in some ways uh, was not incredibly novel. They did show that African-Americans had a higher incidence and prevalence than Caucasians, 
And as I said, if you go down the chain, Caucasians had it more frequently than Hispanics, and the least common but was Asians. But again, people were identified in all four major groups. We also showed pretty clearly that uh, women were more likely to have uh, sarcoidosis than men, and that and on average it was about a 60-40 break for if you look at the entire population. We mentioned the fact that the diagnosis now commonly, more commonly being made over the age of 50, uh, around 55 was the median age. One of the other things had been over the years people had talked about this disease being more of the south or as you point out, there's a fairly large percentage of patients seen in the York City area. But um, if we look at the overall epidemiology across areas of the country, uh, the South, the Midwest, where I practice, and the, and the East, all had about the same frequency of the disease. However, that was about twice as high as that seen out in the West. And this is when you correct it for percentage of population, that is, that the African-American population uh, is more common in, uh, in the eastern part of the United States than the west. But even when you correct for that, there is still a geographical difference, which we don't understand. But I think that that's the source of some interest. People have argued that uh, it's maybe diagnosis that you don't think of it much when you're out the west. But there's always been large sarcoid clinics, including the one that Om Sharma used to run in Los Angeles, that you know points out that there's still a difference, even if you have a clinician who's looking specifically for sarcoidosis. So I think that it is something you see in the western part of the United States, but it's still probably more common in the eastern part. So that's the general epidemiology. There weren't any real big surprises there, um, but it was something that supported what a lot of people had thought and gave some actual numbers to it. The second half of the paper was, I think, the more interesting one because it gave us some real information about the health economics of this disease. First of all, it talked about what these patients were getting treated with. This is a we had looked at this before in more specific studies, but most of the time when we've looked at it before, they've been in sarcoid clinics. So a clinic like mine, uh, a clinic like yours, where patients are coming to see a specialist, uh, they're more likely to get on therapy. But in this study, what we were looking at, what the healthcare providers were paying for for people with a diagnosis of sarcoid, about 50% of the patients were being treated. This is not only for new patients, but for continuing patients. So about half the patients. Again, the most common drug was prednisone. The next big group were the antimetabolites, methotrexate being the most common, but a fair number of people being treated with azathioprine, uh, mycophenolate, uh, leflinamide, and these are not unreasonable choices. These are drugs that I consider second-line agents trying to get people off steroids. And from my perspective, I'm actually quite encouraged because of patients on steroids, it looked like more than half of them were being eventually treated with antimetabolites, which is a good number that we are expecting to see patients not just staying on prednisone forever for the rest of their life. The last Greek uh, therapy were the biologics. The anti-TNF agents represented about 5% of the patients being treated, which is an important number because I think that's about the number of patients we would project do require third-line therapy. The final issue is the cost of care we were able to analyze what was cost to take care of patients with sarcoidosis. And the median price of care for sarcoidosis itself was around $20,000. And for total cost, not condition-related, was another $20,000. So a patient with sarcoidosis was going to be, the price would be around $40,000. That that includes the diagnosis? Diagnostic. That was the diagnosis and, and the treatments in inpatient and outpatient stays. 
it was an attempt to try to see what the true cost of care for a patient with sarcoidosis. We all know that health economics, if you say how much it costs to take a medicine, what does that really mean? But this is, since this is the insurer, this is actually what they paid for the cost of care for a patient over the course of a year on average. They also gave us the numbers for the cost for the top 5%. That is the patients that, the most expensive patients with care. And there you're talking about approximately $100,000 a year. Uh, why is this important? Because as healthcare um, costs have evolved for this small niche of patients with fairly complicated diseases, getting biologics that are quite expensive, it's a good sense of what the cost is, whether you use or do not use a biologic or some of these other expensive medications, because there's other costs involved. There's including things like treatments for pulmonary hypertension, uh, hospitalizations, uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics, and even transplant. The last group was the patients with the maximum cost, and there were patients that were costing more than a million dollars a year for their care mm. for sarcoidosis. So I think that this part of the paper gave us some idea this is not a disease that um, doesn't have a significant impact not only on the patients according to their lifestyle, but in care of their cost of care. So uh, let, let me just let you finish. You you talked no, about. I think I think that's I think that's probably pretty much it for the paper. Yeah, no, no. I but I wanted to. You mentioned what people are being treated with. Can you describe your own approach to treatment in patients uh, with uh, sarcoidosis? Uh, uh, is everyone started on steroids? First, do you sometimes start patients on anti-metabolites? What's your trigger for going to third-line biologic uh, treatments? Yeah, I think that obviously the first question is do they need treatment or not? So as I said, uh, approximately half the patients with sarcoidosis never need treatment. I think the decision to treat should be based mostly on symptoms. There are a few cases in which uh, even if the patient is asymptomatic, you're concerned that they're going to have organ uh, loss or death. Uh, somebody who's got bad eye disease and uh, doesn't recognize it as such, you may want to start therapy or hypercalcemia. But the majority of patients, you're going to make the decision based on whether they do or do not have symptoms. And again, still, prednisone is our first-line drug, with the exception of patients in whom you want to avoid corticosteroids. For patients with on prednisone, I usually try to make a decision within two to four months of how much, how responsive they're going to be. If I, by two to four months, I'm still on fairly high doses, and I define that as more than 10 milligrams a day of prednisone, and they really aren't dramatically going down, uh, then I would go to, to an anti-metabolite. In my experience, about half the patients, I will start off on something beyond prednisone. Unfortunately, since the anti-metabolites and the drug I most commonly use is methotrexate, but all of them take several months to kick in. You usually have an overlap of about three to six months. So, so you so, you don't start an anti-metabolite uh, unless uh, under most circumstances. Under most circumstances, but there are exceptions to that. And I think there are a couple of good examples in my clinic are cardiac sarcoidosis and eye sarcoidosis. Eye sarcoidosis, the ophthalmologist can often maintain the patient with just local aggressive topical therapy, not only just drops of steroids, but they often We'll give them periocular steroid injections, and that will control the disease, but those have their complications. Periocular steroids give them cataracts. 
at a more rapid rate. So we will often just start those patients immediately on methotrexate uh, and never bother giving them prednisone because they're getting high-dose topical therapy. Cardiac disease is a little bit more interesting because they may just present with arrhythmias and uh, have a normal preserved ejection fraction, and yet we still believe they should be treated for their inflammation. So I'll often will start those patients on methotrexate without treating them with prednisone. Their arrhythmias are being controlled by the cardiologist. The electrophysiologist may have already implanted their defibrillator. If not, we probably will encourage them to do that. But we would just put them on methotrexate, and as long as their ejection fraction remains stable, above 50% or so, then we don't treat them with corticosteroids. So you can imagine scenarios like that for other conditions where you're saying, well, look, if I don't treat the inflammation down the road, it's going to give them trouble. So I would start with an anti-metabolite without giving them prednisone. And uh, biologics, so the anti-TNF agents? or Basically, the biologic uh, that we mostly talk about are the anti-TNF agents. We're doing research, and others are using as well other biologics, but you're really talking about the anti-TNF, which are the monoclonal antibodies. And so in practical terms in the United States and most of the world now, is that's infleximab and adilimab. Although most of the literature is on infleximab, there is a growing literature on adilimab, but most of the uh, guidelines and stuff have been developed because of infleximab's widespread use. The clinical trials have been published. There are probably now more than 50 papers on infleximab for sarcoidosis. But we always think of them as a third-line therapy. It may be somebody that you would start more aggressively if you're having to use high-dose steroids to control them in the initial phase. The outstanding example of that is a neurosarcoidosis patient who you're giving IV solumedrol have optic neuritis, they're going blind, and every time you try to back off a bit, they start to get worse again, then you may want to give an anti-TNF agent. But I have not yet can think of somebody that I would start immediately on anti-TNF agent without a trial of steroids um, initially to try to control the disease. And uh, what what about the reintroduction of the uh, ACTH, uh, which is kind of reared up recently? Well, Actar gel is a um, interesting uh, old something old something new agent. It um, is a quite expensive agent, so it puts itself in the box of expensive biologics. Yet it was one of the few drugs ever approved for sarcoidosis based on clinical criteria. It was the first way people got cortisol, and so excessive levels of cortisol for treatment for various conditions, including sarcoidosis, and that's why the FDA approved it in the early 1950s. We've been studying this drug, and partly because uh, although the anti-TNFs are very potent and powerful drugs, they have side effects and they have uh, reactions that patients have them. There are some contraindications, such as an underlying malignancy or severe congestive heart failure. So in our practice, uh, there's a percentage of patients uh, that we have to look for another agent beyond an anti-TNF, and uh, this is one of the drugs that we're looking at. We're just completing clinical trials. Do, does it have any benefit beyond prednisone? I, I believe it does. I think that, um, one, its mechanism of action is somewhat more complex than what we originally thought. It's not just a glucocorticoid receptor agonist. It doesn't just stimulate the adrenal gland. There are other uh, what are called melanocortin-coded receptors on things like T cells, macrophages, and several neurocells. And so the mechanism of action may be much more complex than the 1950s version of it. And 
at least in our practice, there are some patients who have responded to it that well beyond the response that we ever saw with just prednisone alone. Well, that uh, is uh, super interesting, and I look forward to uh, learning a lot more about that. Yeah, but uh, I would I would emphasize that that the use of this drug is truly, in my mind, uh, for a very limited population of patients with sarcoidosis. It's not it's the patient who you've gone up the traditional three steps, and now you're looking for your next agent. Which I I think in your practice, just like in mine, we all have those patients that have failed other agents, and what are we going to do next? And this is what we're always looking for, the next drug. The next great thing. Well, Dr. Uh, Boffman, I'm going to let you go and do all the great things that you're going to do today. And I want to thank you for a superb discussion uh, on an area that all of us uh, deal with in the clinical sphere. So uh, I'm wishing everyone a great day. This is Dr. Alan Fine, podcast editor uh, of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society.